Welcome. This is the Business of Vulnerability, the podcast that shares the wonderful work that individuals, organizations, and communities are doing around the world to try and help those who are most vulnerable. Welcome to the Business of Vulnerability podcast. I'm Blake Kohler, and I'm here with Karen Kalish, who is a um, a serial social entrepreneur. Uh, Karen uh, and I have become friends by by discussing various things over the years, and I'm super excited to have her on the podcast here. Uh, Karen, can you give us a little bit of background on some of your serial social entrepreneurship activities? I'd love to. So serial is like a serial killer. And entrepreneurship is starting something, and social is for the good of the community or or the country. So that's why I put those three words together. Um, I, as soon as I finished college, I moved to Washington D.C. and became a school teacher. And so I taught two years in public school and four years in private school. In fact, the school that the Obama girls went to. And then I quit and became a screaming, yelling consumer advocate, which led to being a TV reporter at CBS in Washington for five years, and then ABC in Chicago for five years. And those 10 years, I was a consumer and investigative reporter, giving people information so they could make a better choice when they got to the marketplace. And then I did two years on Entertainment Tonight, which everyone is ooh and ah, and it was terrible because I didn't like asking Sally Field and JR about their sex lives. And quickly got out of that after two years and started teaching people how to talk to the media without putting their foot in their mouth and without um, and not making any mistakes or anything, getting across what they wanted to get across, and also teaching people how to give wonderful, dynamic speeches and presentations. And I did that for 14 years, but halfway through it, I heard about a program in Philadelphia for black and Jewish high school students. And I got one of those, I wish I had a V8 moment that, oh my gosh, I got to do this. And so it was in Philadelphia. I went to Philadelphia, learned everything. Can I start this in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Can I use the same name, Operation Understanding, and put D.C. on the end? Yes. And so not having a clue how to start a nonprofit, I did. And it was partly putting one foot in front of the other, but making every possible mistake, including not thanking donors in the right way and have learned through the years of what I call the care and feeding of donors. So I built a board and we started, it was a teen leadership program and just copied what they had done. And without going through every little step, um, we did it for five years. I, I did it for five years and I also had my business. So I was raising money, which I did not know how to do, and running this nonprofit and my business, and we were all over the world. And I just got nuts after five years and said, oh, my God, I can't do this anymore. So I secretly applied to graduate school, and there was only one I wanted to go to. And I was 54 years old, by the way, and it was Harvard. And so I got in, and then it was no secret. So I gave the nonprofit to the board who picked my number two to run it, who did a good job. And I gave my business to the trainers and off I went to Cambridge and really thought I had died and gone to heaven and uh, was drinking from a hydrant. And probably the most important class was a leadership class where you were always daily, every class and every paper looking at leadership failures and what could have, should have been done. And that really 
um, I got an A in my paper because I uncovered all these mistakes I had made with Operation mm-hmm. Understanding DC. And so when I finished, I finished my one year master's and loved it so much I stayed a second year. Did the whole thing again, different papers to write, different books to read, different courses to take, different people. I just wasn't ready to leave. But then I moved back to St. Louis and I had no idea exactly what I was going to do. I had grown up here and um, started just sort of figuring things out, did a leadership program. And one of the things we could do in that program was go into a police car on a ride along. And I had done that in Washington, D.C., and it was, oh, my gosh, I wasn't allowed out of the back of the car because it was so dangerous. But my one night in St. Louis in the most dangerous part of town on Saturday night from 7 to midnight, mine was so boring that I made an appointment with the police chief. And I said, I want to put all the police in the schools on a weekly basis, reading and writing with kids, because if they're not reading and writing, you're going to get them, and I don't want you to have them. And he said, well, you can't have the police. They need to be on the street, but you can have all the recruits. So, again, not having a clue what I was doing, I started a program called Books and Badges. And how did I even get that name? I brought a whole bunch of people into my living room with a big jug of wine and a big easel, and we just kept throwing things on the easel until we came up with Books and Badges. And so it ran for 18 years, and I learned what, even though I'd been a teacher, I learned how to be a good reading partner. And for 18 years, every recruit class in the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department was trained by me, and I found the schools, and they went into them, and I always had the chief come the very first time I trained them, saying to these recruits, this is police work, and if you don't think it is, get another job, because 99% of your work is community, which we really see now, and this was 18 years ago, 99% of your work is community, and only 1% is guns and shooting people. So two-thirds of the recruits liked it, thought it was really fun, and learned a lot, actually. And one-third were, what the heck am I doing with this second grader? I signed up to shoot guns and arrest people. But for 18 years, every recruit class. Then a few years after I started Books and Badges, people in St. Louis came to me and said, we need that program that you started in Washington for high school students. So I got a whole bunch of groups together and said, who wants to help me start this? And a lot of people did, so we started it here. The first year it was black and Jewish, but come to realize very quickly that we were not the two most hated groups in America anymore. In the 90s, we were, one for our religion and one for the color of our skin. But after 2001, we had, unfortunately, competition. So it quickly we changed the, the, um, the mission and the program to be for about civil rights, social justice, and democracy, and for all high school students. Asian, Islam, Muslims, um, everybody, Hispanic, everybody, because the issues were so important. And this was 2004 or so, way before uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson. So I started that, ran it for five years, and said to the board, I'm ready to move on. And they were not so ready to lose me. Um, because, I, But I had found something else that I wanted to do. And that was, I learned how, um, well, I went to a a um, a training in California on community organizing, and I heard about a program in Texas where the teachers were doing home visits with kids who were struggling and having a relationship with the parents and getting the parents to read, talk, play, and sing with their children from the day they're born, not wait till they got to school, which is too late. 
And I got another one of those, oh my gosh, I had wish I had a V8 moment. And I had to do that one. So in the seventh year, I left Cultural Leadership, the program. We had a slightly different, not slightly, a different title of the program in St. Louis. And I started Home Works, the teacher home visit program. And for the last 13 years, we have been training, supporting, and paying teachers in low-performing schools to go to the homes of their struggling students to get their parents engaged in their education. And it has been really a game changer. But, of course, it would be because when parents and teachers work together, kids do better, period. It's just a statement. Well, when COVID came, we had to quickly pivot to virtual home visits only to find out how deep this digital divide was. It took one of our teachers three weeks to find 23 kids, her 23 kids. And that was when I got the idea to, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do about this? We, these kids have got to get educated. We're going to pay the price for them not being educated. So what are we going to do? So I decided that we would choose one school, one low-performing, low-income neighborhood school in St. Louis Public Schools and make a commitment that every single kid would get connected, not only with a device, but with directions, but with hotspots, but with earphones, headphones, with charging cords. And not only that, we have to train mom, dad, grandma, because again, parents make the difference. So we are, school hasn't even started yet on August. This is before August 31st when school starts, but we are knee deep into this now. We are paying the parents to come to training. They have jobs or they don't realize how important it is, and we have to get them trained so they can support their kids in distance learning. So we're paying the parents to come. We're giving them food. I have to always give food. And if a parent has to take a time off work, we will pay for that time because the parent's involvement is so important. We don't know everything we're going to need to do this year to make sure that every kid is in front of that computer screen seven hours of the day or six, whatever the school decides, because they're still messing around with that. But whatever it is, we have a group of 40 volunteers so far and, mo and more people coming because they're so excited about this. And each teacher will have three volunteers that she or he can turn to. And if those kids aren't in front of that screen, they're going to phone, they're going to text, and they may even have to drive to the house and see what's going on. They can't get up. They, they're not awake. They can't get on. They didn't charge their computer. Whatever it takes to get those kids. Now, here's the great part. We are documenting every single thing we do, whether it works or it doesn't work. And we have five academics from business school, from med school, from ed schools who are documenting everything we're doing so that we can get the word out locally and nationally on what it takes because it's estimated that between 30 and 33% of the kids in this country are not connected, and we need them. We need them educated until we get this vaccine and we get back to school. So that takes you from cultural uh, operation understanding DC to books and badges to homeworks to teach your home visit program. And the two parts of that this year are doing this um, Getting Patrick Henry Connected. The school's name is Patrick Henry, so we just call it what it is, Getting Patrick Henry <laughs> Connected. And the other is we are doing virtual home visits in with hundreds of students in seven schools. 
two early childhood, five elementary, one rural, three suburban, and three urban. Now, we've been in 116 schools since we started, but this year we're making a concerted effort to go smaller and deeper and get some of the data we haven't been able to get because we spread ourselves too thin. So that takes you up to today. Now, mistakes. I'm going to share with you a mistake that wasn't made with any of these, but I, I, I look forward to, sh I love sharing this because it's got such a great message that I learned. And what's the mistake? Way before I was involved in parent and family in starting homeworks, I was just so curious about and trying to figure out how are we going to get these parents engaged in their education? How do we get them to come to the school even? Because we know even parents that come to school, their kids do better for PTA meetings or, or just conferences. I mean, we've, we're in schools where the parents don't come, can't come to conferences. So what are we going to do? And I knew from my work with Cultural Leadership and Operation Understanding DC that cleanliness and washers and dryers and having clean clothes is so important in the black and brown community. I have to say in some places it's more important than it is the white community. And there are families that will keep their kids home if they don't have clean clothes and just look, look so sharp. So, and I know that there are many families and apartments and homes in the inner city that do not have washers and dryers and they have to go to the laundromat. So I thought, why don't we put washers and dryers in schools with the soap, with everything, and have mom, dad, grandma bring, come to school but they can't wait in the room while the washing is being done or the drying, but they have to go into the library and put books in the shelves or go in the office and help answer the phone or do something. Even the back of the classroom would be great, but somehow be part of the school. So as I got this wonderful um, appliance store to agree to sell me those things at cost and deliver them for nothing, and so and I had three schools that were open to this in the um, in the urban schools, and as I'm putting this whole thing together, I'm telling people, and I'm telling white people about it, and they say, oh, my God, you are so brilliant. How did you think of this? And I'm telling black people that I'm involved in this, black and brown people, and they think it, they look at me like I am totally nuts, and they have a bad look on their face and say, what are you doing? That is the worst idea I've ever heard. It's not going to work. And it was absolutely down racial lines, the reaction. So I keep going, and because I was too far along, and guess what? All the black and brown people were right. Not one family came. Why? Because of pride. And did I even once go to the families in these schools and say, would you like to have a washer and dryer in the school or anything about it? No. This is the story of a privileged white woman thinking she knows best and going barreling ahead and doing it without mm -hmm. even asking the community. And so it is, it's a big mistake. It's a big aha. And it's something that happens in a lot of communities. Privileged white people thinking they know what others who have, they've never walked in their shoes and don't know what it's like being them. And they know what they think they need and go ahead and do it without even asking them, partnering with them, collaborating with them. I mean, the neighborhood might have said, we want lights on our streets. We want sidewalks that are that are walkable. I mean, I have no idea. I didn't even go and ask them, rather than a washer and dryer. So that's one of my 
mistakes that I um, that I share a lot. I uh, I'm curious. Was this in the timeline? Was this one of the mistakes you wrote about when you were at Harvard, or did this happen after that? This happened after. This happened after uh, I got okay. back to St. Louis. I did, it was it was Harvard from 1999 to 2001, and I've been back in St. Louis since the end of 2001. So this is maybe 2002 or three that I had this what I thought was a brilliant idea, which was not. <laughs> or it might have been had I gone to this to them, and then they might have come. But it wasn't. When you do something and no one comes, it's not a good idea. So um, as I've been building these nonprofits, I've learned and learned and learned and learned and listened and listened and listened. And when, um, well, let me go at it from this way. When I was lucky enough to um, inherit a little money and decided I wanted to put it into a fund so I could give it away. and when people first started, when me, when I first started trying to decide who to give it to, people would come to me with an idea, and oh, that sounds like a good idea. Here's a little money. I didn't do any homework whatsoever, zero. That sounds like a good idea, and and gave it. And actually, the first donation I ever made was anonymous because I didn't want anyone to know it came from me. I didn't want anyone to know I had two nickels to rub together. And I just, and I told the, it was the Jewish Federation, and I said, don't, and don't ever um, tell anybody, and if you do, I won't ever give another penny. And then um, someone came to me, who I really respected a lot, and said, Karen, I want you to rethink this, because your name on a list, and I don't mean to sound as conceited, but it's true of a lot of people, your name on the list would spark other people to give. Oh, if Karen can give, maybe I can. Or if Karen thinks it's a good idea, maybe I do too. So I rethought that whole anonymous part. But then it was people came and they thought they sound like a good idea, no homework. And then I decided there were two things that were very important to me as I was on this this journey of being uh, um, of giving to um, nonprofits. And one of them was collaboration. I wanted anyone I gave to to know. If it was an early childhood nonprofit, for example. I wanted them to know the other early childhood programs so they could talk about talk with them and learn from them and maybe even collaborate with them or partner with them. And the ones who didn't want to do that or didn't know who the other ones were and or didn't want to collaborate or partner, I wouldn't give because I'm always thinking of the greater good, and in this case, St. Louis. So everybody being in their own lane and their own little silo does not help St. Louis. What does help St. Louis is if they're working together and sharing best practices and, and doing things for the good of the community. So collaboration and partnerships was really important to me. And I offered people, nonprofits who came, to get them, to introduce them to other ones, but most of them wouldn't want to do that. So I didn't give to those. The other important thing to me was evaluation. Are you evaluating what you're doing? Are you learning what works and what doesn't work and then stopping what doesn't work and doing more of what does work? And what I got more often than not was, well, we can't afford that. Or we might do that someday. I said, well, you know what? Um, You need to do it now. You need to get a baseline and you need to be doing it now and seeing what works and what doesn't work rather than just keep going down that road if you have no clue. Well, we have some stories, they would say, or we have some anecdotes. I said, no, not good enough. Anybody can put anecdotes together. You need an outside evaluator. And we have nine universities here 
and they all have PhDs who have students who want to be PhDs who need projects and who have to do evaluations, especially for education and things like that. So I would turn them on to people and introduce them to people who could do that, but more often than not, they didn't do it. And so I wouldn't give to them either because I thought evaluation and even knowing how important evaluation is was so important. So evaluation and collaboration were my two things that would keep me from giving. And then I learned about this incredible man named Mario Marino. Mario Marino, um, he's 76 or 77, lives in Cleveland. He's worth $175 million, according to Wikipedia. And I know him and asked him if that was right. And he said, yeah, that was about right. And he retired about 15, 20 years ago and studied the nonprofit world for four years, small, medium, and large, coast to coast, every issue, medical, education, the arts, animals, everything. And what he saw appalled him because he saw thousands of nonprofits just having numbers, how many meals they served, how many books they gave out, how many shots they gave, but nothing else. Like, so, yeah, so what? So what you gave that many shots? Did you stop disease? Did you make people well? Did the books raise the reading level of the kids? I mean, what? Yes, so what? And there was no so what. It was a bunch of numbers. So he wrote this book called Leap of Reason, and um, it's available far and wide and usually for free. And he wrote this book about what he found. And then a few years later, the few people who were doing a good job got together and they wrote something called the performance imperative. And I urge anyone listening to this to just Google performance imperative. And what this group came up with was a definition of a high performing nonprofit, which had to do with measurable and sustainable goals for which the organization was founded. But it also had seven pillars of a high-performing nonprofit. And I added an eighth one. But here are the seven pillars. Number one is a um, leadership team, the board of directors that acts a, a certain way. They have one from each um, each skill. They have a PR person. They have a lawyer. They have a lawyer. They have an accountant. They have a, a IT person. They have business leaders in the community. And everyone has to make a sizable donation or a significant, I should say, um, donation that, that is good for them. I mean, for some people, you could do 50000 Some people would do 5000 Some people would do 500 But they have to give and they have to get. There's a funny little saying, which is give, get, or get off And for a board member. And so everyone on the board has to give and everyone on the board has to get. That means they have to go to their friends, family, and and uh, relative and um, colleagues, and ask them to support the nonprofit. And they shouldn't be on the board unless they would be comfortable doing that, and they care enough about the nonprofit that they could ask people. And I always look, by the way, on fundraising as giving someone else the opportunity to play a part in something that's way more important than I am. So to to care enough about the nonprofit, they would be proud to go to their friends and colleagues and and um, family to ask for support. So a board that looks and acts a certain way, they have to have certain committees and executive committee, et cetera. Number two, the second pillar is about the management team, the COO, the CEO, the CFO, the development person, the program person, 
they have to be the right people in the right seats on the bus, to use Jim Collins' phrase from good to great. And if they're not, you got to get rid of them and get the right people in the right seats on the bus. So that management team has to look a certain way. The third pillar is about a program that moves the needle, not a bunch of numbers, managing the outcomes, making a difference, moving the needle. So very important to have that um, a program that does that. Number four is financially healthy and sustainable, and that means growing every year. You cannot have the same amount one year that you have 10 years later because you're not growing and you're not financially healthy and sustainable if you have not been growing. So being financially healthy and sustainable. The fifth one has to do with a culture of learning. And that means that both the management team and the board have to know all about whatever the issue is that this nonprofit is about. We're about parent and family engagement and now about the digital divide. So that is crucial for both the team and the board to know about. And six and seven have to do with data internal data and external, and using that to inform the program. And then the eighth one I added has to do with um, the collaboration and partnership and knowing the other nonprofits in whatever area you're in and working with them, not in your own silo. I'm a little curious how you rate your past nonprofits on this pillar scale. It would all be different. If I was looking at cultural leadership, I mean, Operation Understanding DC, I put the board together and had no idea how to put a board together. Mm-hmm. So if I'd have to go back and look at it and see if we did have one lawyer. I'm At that time, I took anybody that was breathing and said, yes, that is not the way uh, to put a board together. I would tell them what we're doing. You like it? Okay. Want to be on the board? Okay, great. That was it. We had no governance committee or anything or um, board development committee to see if it was the right person. So I'd have to go through each one and see, and the people, well, I was not, I should not have been the CEO and the founder. And by the way, founders need to get out of the way at three, four, five, six years, maybe at the most, you need new blood in there. And Mm -hmm. a lot of founders, that's their baby, it's their identity, and they don't want to leave. And that's not good for the nonprofit or for the community. So you always have to be thinking about the health of the nonprofit and the community. So I'm, I'm thinking about the program that moves the needle. Yeah, I would say that both the um, operation understanding and cultural leadership absolutely move the needle for the for the participants and the wider community. Uh, financially healthy? Nope. Those other two are not. Um, I've tried to work with them, but it's they don't. They have people there who don't raise don't know how to raise money, and that's really important that an ED or a CEO know how to do that. You shouldn't have anybody that doesn't know how to do that. Um, let's see, culture of learning. I've been pretty good at that. And the data. No, they have the other two programs have not been collecting any data. And that is a big mistake. How uh, How's your current one doing? I assume pretty well based off of this is well, how you evaluate if you're giving money. But. but not only pretty well, we even have a pillar committee. Wow. We hired a consultant um, from this book, A Leap, Leap of um, Reason. And Mario put together a team of people that are called Leap Ambassadors. And we hired one to come in and do an audit with us on how we were doing and then get us on the road to being high performing. And it's a three-year journey, by the way. It's not just checking a bunch of boxes like a strategic plan and move on. So we are on that road. And we are, I, we're, pretty, we're pretty good in all 
eight areas, the seven pillars and the collaboration part. You want people to think, oh, just start a nonprofit. But I say don't <laughs> unless unless you have worked for a nonprofit, you really study it, you know that no one else is doing it. And the reason I say that is there are more than 4 million nonprofits in this country. And I think it's more than that. I wish I could remember the number, but I do remember the number. I'm in St. Louis and there are 23,000 nonprofits in Missouri and there's 48,000 nonprofits in Illinois right across the river. That's 75,000 nonprofits just in these two states. And I don't have the list, but I can promise you that 90, 98, 90, a high 90 percent are not moving the needle. And therefore, I don't think they should be around unless they're going to be move the needle, get out of the way. Mm. And if you look at all the nonprofits and all the problems we have in this country, whether it's criminal justice, any any issue you want to talk about, we have not moved the needle. Our education is still horrible and the kids are still not performing. And in the criminal justice, we've got more people in jail than we've ever had before and more black people in jail than we've ever had before. And these promises, these problems are getting bigger, not smaller, as the number of nonprofits are rising. So what's wrong with this picture? Uh, everything. <laughs> exactly. For people that may be listening that you know have considered starting a nonprofit or uh and and you've eloquently talked them out of it at this point uh how would you uh how would you suggest people get involved to make the biggest impact for the communities right running nonprofits you obviously see how people are involved that are working and you know where their individual actions are moving the needle and ones that don't what well, what's the ask, best I'm way to answer it i'm gonna answer it two ways sure um when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Have you heard that yes. phrase? Yes, I have. Yep. So where I'm concerned and where my heart is, is about our kids and literacy. And if a kid can't read by, if a kid comes to school on the very first day and doesn't know his, his or her shapes, colors, letters, and how to write his or her name, that child will end up in the criminal justice system, period. That is just a given because... They're not in school, forgetting the COVID, what, even before the COVID. And I'll just ask you this question, um, Blake. What percentage, mm -hmm. I'm going to get back to your question this way. What percentage of a year do you think that our kids in America are in their schools, public schools? What percentage of their whole entire year, 12 months, 365 days, what percentage of a whole year were our kids in their school building? I'm going to say I'm, I might cheat here because I've talked to you before about it. But I can tell you, originally, my guess was something like 40%. Right. It's usually 40, 50, 60, 70%. Yep. And the answer, unfortunately, is 14%. Now, how did I get that? And this is, not a, this is a math problem. This is not a data problem. This is math. They go to school seven hours a day, and they're in school 180 days. So just do the math, and whatever that number is, it's about 1,200, 1,220, I, I can't, something like that. And then that's how many hours they're in school all year. But there's 8,760 hours in a year. So that comes out to 14%. 
33% sleeping, we hope, eight hours a night, 365 days a year. But that leaves 53% out of school. That's all summer, every Saturday, every Sunday, and nine hours of every day they're not in school or sleeping. If a kid comes from a home where there's no reading, talking, playing, singing, and they come to school on their first day, pre-K or K, not knowing how to write their name, their shapes, their letters, their colors, that child is two years behind and will never be able to catch up being in school 14% of his or her year. So when people say, what can they do to make a difference in this country? Go to the closest low-performing school and see if you can get a kid that you will come once a week, not less, more is better, but not less, not just whenever you feel like it, and spend 45 minutes reading with that child. That will make a difference in this country if our kids can be reading on grade level and then graduate on time and go on to college or some other post-secondary education because we need police and fire and electricians and plumbers in the military. And not everybody needs to go to college. We need it all. We need PhDs and doctors and lawyers, and we need plumbers and, and electricians and the military and the police and the fire. So help that kid be able to go graduate and then go on to some other post-secondary education and graduate from there able to put food on the table for his or her family. I will tell you one little lesson that I live by. I have about seven of them, but one of them is get-tos versus got-tos. You never, I never say I got to go to the store, I got to go to the hospital, I got to, got to, got to. No, it's all a get-to. I get to go to the store. I get to go visit someone in the hospital. I get to get a colonoscopy. Yuck, yuck. But <laughs> it's all, if you, everyone listening would change their got-tos to get-tos, it changes everything. And so all this work that I get to do is a get-to. I get to do this. And I'm 75. And healthy, healthy, healthy. So first I have my health, and then I have this purpose in life. So everything's a get-to. And aren't I lucky that I get to do this? Thank you for listening to The Business of Vulnerability. If you or somebody you know would be a wonderful guest for our next recording, please let us know at Team Pulse. It's T-E-A-M-P-U-L-S-E at PulseForGood.com. Thank you.